0: WISE has grown dramatically, and our space has grown dramatically, and what we offer.
1: Today's conversation focuses on two amazing women who have worked with WISE for decades. Lizanne Payton, and Abby Tassel. Lizanne was a board member whose experience in building nonprofits proved crucial to WISE's transformation. And Abby is a longtime WISE employee who started as a volunteer, worked in WISE's education program, and is now director of the groundbreaking multidisciplinary interview and training center at WISE. Both of them joined in the early to mid-1990s. Through their words, today's episode charts WISE's incredible growth from a startup to the Upper Valley institution we know now and tells the story of how public conversations about gender-based violence have grown through WISE's expansion. This is Wiser. I'm Jess Chase,
2: and let's hear from our guests. First, Lizanne Payton. I moved to the Upper Valley in the early 1990s, And someone wonderfully reached out to me to ask if I would like to join the board. And at that point, I didn't know about WISE. And I hadn't really had any contact with uh, groups doing gender violence work. But I had worked in um, the field of mental health, um, helping with policy and networking among agencies. And so here was an area that linked with the things I care about, but that I was really interested to learn more and see how I could help. What attracted you to WISE's mission? Um, I think that having come of age in the 60s and 70s, I was, um, at the time when a lot of things were changing, women, lo and behold, could get a credit card without a husband's signature. They could get a bank loan to buy a house. Um, Eventually, they were able to adopt a child as a single parent. And, um, you know, my mom was born in 1917, and her mother didn't even get to vote for another three years so i had seen that aspect of it and my mother also um, stayed in the workforce till she was married at the age of 40 and had had the chance to be taken seriously to run a division to you know show me that you know women could be anything they wanted what wasn't really everything but that they could have a voice and so you know, seeing those changes, um, going to college was funny because in the in the mid seventies, I just assumed that colleges were co-ed, and I didn't realize that the year before I started college was the first hmm. graduating class of women. Wow! Uh, and then I saw how the college had not adapted to um, what women were looking for, which is not an entirely fraternity based college. They wanted a different kinds of culture, and so. Seeing women who were stepping up and saying, institutions, here's how you need to adapt. Institutions, here's how it looks from a woman's perspective in what had been an all-male culture. Um, those things were pretty formative for me. And uh, you know. And then in the 1970s, seeing so many nonprofits get started um, based on social missions that had really arisen. And knowing that groups like WISE said, here's an issue that shouldn't be this way. And we have a long way to go, but life should not be this way for women. And next we'll hear from Abby.
0: I'm Abby Tassel, and um, I have been involved with WISE in a variety of ways since 1994. When I moved to the Upper Valley, I already um, had figured out that Doing work to um, support survivors and and gender-based violence was an important part of my life. And as soon as I moved here, I found out what the local organization was and gave them a call. And they said, great, we really need someone to watch children during our Monday night support groups. And I was like, okay, that's me. I'm there. So I, um, was, you know, basically playing with kids for on Monday nights for a while and started to meet more of the staff and, um, a- and it had occurred to me early on that maybe this was something that I wanted to do as my job and career and, um, but I wasn't quite there yet. And one of the staff members was really encouraging me to do the um, crisis line volunteer training. And so I said, yeah, sure, you know, I could do that. That makes sense. Um, So I I did the volunteer training and started to volunteer on the crisis line. And really liked it, but also I liked how we were talking about it and thinking about it. And, um, and I just kept thinking, you know, I, I think this is probably what I should be doing with myself, with more of my time. And um, in the next year or so, a position opened up to do the outreach and education for the organization and I applied for the job and I got it and so I started doing the school programs so I was going into um, primarily high schools and then we started to expand to the middle schools and then we started to expand into younger grades so first before we get into that I do want to I want to rewind a little bit to um your first
1: involvement with this type of work in Boston. And I'm curious, what what attracted you to work with survivors?
0: Um, I'm somewhat embarrassed to say at this point in my life that it was more than anything else that it was in my neighborhood and I heard that they were looking for volunteers. And um, my attitude at the time before I started the training was pretty much like, oh, I'm going to help those poor people who are having those horrible experiences. A- at the time, I was working in um, the architecture and construction worlds and generally as the only um, kind of woman-identified person in any role outside of um, kind of office management or secretarial work and experiencing pretty dramatic sexual harassment on a regular basis. But it just, despite what most of my friends' awareness was of those issues, I was pretty stubbornly committed to being in denial about them. Hmm. And um, when I started the training at the the shelter program, it was in Chelsea, Mass. It was called Harbor Me. It's since... Has shifted a little bit, but um, I. It was the first time that I sat in a room with people who were really talking about sexism in a way that connected with me, and so I started to realize the, um, you know how male supremacy and sexism was impacting me and in my present world and my life and the work that I was doing that I really loved, but how I had to navigate that world incredibly carefully every day in order to keep myself safe and to keep my job. Um, And also I started to think about how actual gender-based violence had you know, personally impacted me and had it impacted the other people in the training. And so, um, as often happens in the WISE trainings as well, you know, you just, there's a bond with the people that you go through that process with. And I um, I really bonded with a number of the women that were in the training. And I think that was where my enthusiasm about the educational piece also started was, you know. I thought, gosh, here I am, you know, this kind of white, upper middle class, middle class, whatever woman with, you know, had a, a college education and I couldn't, wouldn't see it despite all of the, that entitlement and then those advantages and, um, and, and, and It hadn't been, they weren't ideas that had been introduced to me earlier in my life at all. And I just thought, wow, if I could, you know, if I had known about this when I was younger, you know, that would have been really amazing. And I got really excited about talking to younger people about it.
1: For Lizanne. So, when you arrived in the early 90s,
2: what did WISE look like? Well, that's a great story of WISE's development. When I arrived, it was a very small organization. I think it might have only had five staff. Uh, Nancy Frost, the director, had been very much uh, in the grassroots movement, the consensus decision making movement. Um, And it was not an organization that had systems in place yet, but I work with organizational life cycles in my nonprofit consulting, and they were at a very classic stage where the, uh, the organization was widely respected for its services, and it had grown to the point where it needed more structure and organization capacity. And it was a turning point right there when they started looking for board members who had more... governance and systems kinds of skills and perspectives, it was a time when they were realizing the need to build the infrastructure and taking that seriously. So when I arrived, Wise was in a building that, you know, didn't really have a lot of space set up for what this kind of work needs. So one staff would have to walk through another person's office to get to her office, Hmm. which made it kind of hard to have private client meetings. Uh, it was furnished with donated furniture, which made sense for a small organization. But it said to itself, you know, women coming here have been through a very tough time and they deserve a nice couch. And we just haven't had the money to do those things, but we need to step it up. So in those times in the mid-90s, Wise was doing things like um, setting up a fundraising committee, which it had never had before, It was beginning to ask board members to help develop those resources. Um, It was getting its education programs going. It was deciding that maybe it was time to look for new office space, but maybe there wasn't the money yet. But a real commitment to upgrading the professional image and the professional functioning of the organization.
1: One of the programs Lizanne mentioned is WISE's Prevention Education Program. So while Lizanne was working with the board, Abby was collaborating to build WISE's education program and expand its presence in the schools.
0: Yeah, I was, I believe, the second person in that position. And um, the first person's name was also Abby, and mm-hmm. which made it really easy because when schools were calling and asking for Abby, then they were going to get the second Abby, but they didn't necessarily know and um, I think, you know, from my personal perspective, I was like, oh, you know, if we can just get out there and kind of help people understand this, then it's not going to happen anymore. Like, I, I, I was very naive at the beginning about um, what it was really going to take for us to um, kind of end the violence. And um, and I was feeling as though it was incredibly important. It was very committed to it myself. And, um, and what I was seeing at the time was that there was an enthusiasm in the education community, certainly for the information. I can remember this one woman who's just pop- popping into my head at Lebanon high school, who is. um, you know listening to these kind of feminist punk rock groups and was you know really excited to see me in her classroom because she could she was making those connections for herself. I was also just thinking about this. um, we were in one of the local high schools, and we did I, I was with a volunteer, and I'll be darned right now if I can remember what inspired us to do this. I think it may have been because there was some resistance in the room. That there, um, we had students write about their own experiences with violence, and um, and I remember sitting there with a volunteer during our lunch break and reading these, and just my heart was broken, you know. So it was in a space where people were, you know, kind of teasing each other and pretending that. This didn't have anything to do with their reality. And then we're sitting reading about, you know, students in our school that talked about them being sexually assaulted by people that they knew, by relatives, by neighbors, you know, witnessing um, mothers being, you know, abused by their partners. Um, and, and how it felt for them—it was quite, quite an amazing moment.
1: I'm curious, yeah, What are, are what are some of the other milestones of how Wise has developed,
2: you know, during your time of involvement? I think that um, Wise has been phenomenal in getting a community conversation started. I'll just give an example. There was um, there was a lunch with uh, an author who was in town to speak on a book that he'd written and another speaker who came, um, both were men. And one of them said, so here's how I start my talks in the community. I ask all the women in the audience to tell me all the ways that they feel they need to keep themselves safe. Well, and there was no shortage of hands going up, which side of the street do I walk down? Do I look at a man in the eyes or not? Do I, um, Am I supposed to wear the right clothes? Um, What what do I have to kind of always keep my radar up about? What do I do if I'm in a situation where somebody is um, pushing unwanted attention on me? And I have to be thinking about those things all the time. I have to think about that for my daughter. I have to have those conversations with my daughter. That's what it feels like to feel you're not really safe. I had an incident when I was 13 that um, I was walking home from a bus stop uh, to my house, which was maybe two-tenths of a mile and on the way. Uh, There was a construction crew stopping for lunch, and they started whistling and catcalling. I didn't know what it meant. I was scared. Why should I have to be scared walking down the street? I felt that I should just walk calmly So it was not to show that I was scared or not to provoke something else. And as soon as I got out of sight, I ran home in tears Mm. to my mom. And so I, you know, I lived with that from that age. Then the author would ask the men, what are the things you have to do to keep yourself safe? And they kind of laughed and maybe one person said one thing. And to see the men stunned at the length of the women's um, list, made some of them really uncomfortable and shocked and crying that I had no idea my wife, my daughter, my friend had to do that. I didn't know that's what their life was like. And um, the the other author spoke about ways that men and boys are raised to tamp down feelings and sensitivity um, and gentleness in order to fit into the culture that they start experiencing. And I know that uh, there's been a great documentary talking to boys in about fifth or sixth grade and they describe a sudden transition of having, having to hide part of themselves. And that that then um, supports or enables um, the perpetuation of behaviors. Well, what does it mean to be a man? You know, don't throw like a girl. All these kinds of things that you're supposed to say. Yeah. And that they see where those behaviors started to come from. And one of the uh, people at the book talk, a man, started to cry afterwards and said, I didn't know how much I was contributing to this. I didn't know that that's really part of who I am, of having grown up with those attitudes. I never knew that. I don't want to be that way. He was one of the most constructive men um, in the circle around wise that I had met and still think of him that way. And he began to feel inside himself, this is me too. Not that he's violent, but that he carries attitudes that women aren't put through the gamut from a young age to not, not be themselves. And for someone like that to feel the role that they have in the community, to feel that there are a lot of men who may not understand that they carry as many... Um, cultural pressures and that has shaped their behavior is an important part of the conversation. This book talk happened in the early 2000s,
1: and this was a change from Lizanne's early days on the board.
2: When I told my friends that I was on the board of WISE, they said, what's that? They didn't know about it in the community. I would start to explain some of the things that I learned about the cycle of violence, and some of those would shut down and say oh I want to talk about that that's too depressing or that's something I don't know how I'll we'll ever solve it so there was an un- discomfort with it that came out when some someone like myself who had begun to learn about it found it exciting to talk about and didn't find a lot of people excited to talk about that then now I do there is a colleague of mine who was around the wise circle in the 90s and learned a lot about these issues. And 20 years later, she revealed to me that um, she was in an abusive relationship and she had felt too ashamed to tell anybody. And she felt that she maybe shouldn't tell people because her husband had a prominent role in the community. And now she finally felt comfortable talking about it. She felt that wise had had a lot to do with her ability to finally say, This is something that I can talk about. I don't have to feel ashamed. So I've had more and more casual conversations or deep conversations with friends where they're putting it out on the table in a way that I never heard before.
1: And it turns out WISE was not the only cultural carrier of this conversation.
0: I remember while I was doing the program was when I think it was Special Victims Unit maybe started (laughs) on TV and being so excited because there are students that were saying like, oh, I saw something like this on TV, you know, where the you know, person was blaming themselves or other people didn't believe her. Um, and, you know, so it, it, was, it was before there was any sort of kind of media attention being given to it on a regular basis. And, you know, it may be that looking back on it, that made my job a little bit easier. Also, you know, people weren't um, as polarized as they were, as they are now sometimes about these issues. I lump it in with the polarization around so many social issues Mm -hmm. in our world today. And um, what I, you know, I think for some people, for some reason, it feels scary that, um, that we would be questioning, you know, like I've been calling it male supremacy, that there'd be, um, a questioning of that. And, and I guess for people who, for whom, you know, holding onto that power feels really important, I can understand it. Um, I guess the part of it that, that is beyond my comprehension is my deep belief that, um, when everyone can inhabit their own personal power that everyone's better off Mm -hmm. and that everyone would feel that in their own way Um, but i could see how you know when we're in power that it could feel scary to lose some of that and i suspect that's what's happening
2: I think one of the other ways that WISE has seen the complexity of systems that it could be part of, when in the past people might say, oh, well, we do this service and they do that service, and so why would we talk to each other? It has recognized that there are some very special, complex, nuanced issues in the kind of legal support that um, people affected by gender-based violence need. One of the things I was really excited to learn as a board member in the 90s was that women could have a wise advocate go with them to court, to sit in court with them, to help them see that they could speak safely and tell the things that might not be comfortable to say, but the ways that they could empower themselves to help protect themselves in the outcomes of those situations. And so the awareness of that need developed into partnerships, and particularly uh, with one particular woman who has a strong background, uh, Kate Semple Barta, has a strong background in immigration law too. And to see the interplay of those issues, that's one of the things that WISE taught me about. If you are here from another country and in an abusive relationship, someone can just say, well, I'll keep all the family passports and you can't have yours back, by the way. Um, Not knowing the system or speaking English, uh, uh, a woman or a man in that situation of being uh, abused and intimidated by their partner might mean that they weren't allowed to drive on the community, they couldn't get a job, they wouldn't have access to places where they might learn that they had rights and that, no, the partner's threat that if you say anything, you'll be deported, they will deport you, was not accurate. I would say the, the other thing that has been phenomenal in WISE's history but also its impact in the community is purchasing its own building and then opportunities to acquire uh, transition housing. And when WISE did that, it had the credibility and the inspiration for the community to step up and support that financially. The building that they're in now was in need of renovation And Peggy O'Neill, the director, said, you know, everybody should come to this building, whether they are seeking services or just dropping by or working here, and feel proud and dignified because it's a nice building. It is laid out to give staff what they need. It's attractive and soft, comforting, furniture and colors and flowers. And it transformed this image of what uh, an organization you know, might be in order to not look like they were spending, to not look like they were spending money on the wrong things, quote, unquote. And the feeling of going into that building really changed, I think, um, part of the public acceptance of it. People who went in for meetings or or, uh, conversations, workshops, whatever, they came out telling the community, wow, this is such a good environment. And then, wow, they're developing transitional housing so people can find that. And they are really making huge strides in teaching the rest of us the kind of dignity that people deserve and that staff deserve in terms of their working space. So I think that that particular thing of helping WISE leave a small... Uh, building kind of aging not having the space or the, the the feeling of walking in that it wanted that has done a lot to teach the community that we all belong here and that these services are available to anyone and you can come and you will be treated with great respect and look at the environment the physical environment we have created that absolutely says that when you walk in the door
1: As Wise has grown, you can feel the reverberations of his work radiate outwards through conversations in classrooms and bookstores and through cooperation and collaboration with other organizations, much like the one that led to this podcast. And while Wise maintains its core mission of listening to survivors and finding resources to meet their needs, it started to feel in these conversations like another crucial part of the equation is this raised awareness and a change in culture— the kind of change that would prevent this kind of violence in the first place.
0: I think it can feel like the model is, oh, there's this organization that, you know, I can um, give money to and they'll take care of it for me. And that's part of the equation for sure. And I think, you know, the Upper Valley community has been so generous and supportive of WISE and its mission And there's this piece of how do we really engage within the community and how do we make sure that as many people as possible understand this in ways that, um, make sure that they don't fall into some of the traps of believing in the myths that are out there so that, um, you know, the violence itself will end, but also so that the systems that are in place can actually function. You know, we have a a criminal legal system that depends on people in the community being knowledgeable and educated enough about the issues that they'll be able to understand what it is that they're seeing if they're jurors. And and we're not quite there yet, I would say. And...
1: As someone who's doing this work on the ground, I'm curious what grounds you in doing this work every day.
0: Um there there's something incredibly hopeful about how people in our community and beyond um they're determination both as activists and as survivors and as activist survivors and um and the people that I work with on a daily basis in the systems that are trying to support them and holds other people accountable and um I think the the dedication and the open heartedness of all of these different people and how it's, it's kind of okay to not know everything, but that it's worth it to try. And that if we don't try, then that's a problem. And So, you know, I think there are moments that I feel like, oh, you know, someone else can do this better than me or, you know, maybe I've done enough already. And then you just go like, no, there's so much more to do. And it takes people just getting up in the morning and trying. And that, and trying together. And, you know, that's kind of all it is. And so there's... There's just something that feels deeply meaningful for me in that, that I get to get up and, um, you know, sometimes get really frustrated and sometimes <laughs> feel really overwhelmed, but know that, you know, I'm just a person who's trying, and that's what all of us hopefully are doing, and that um, – is all we can do, and so it sort of has to be enough. And it it really, in some ways, is enough, I guess.
2: I think that the ability for WISE to lead the development and co-lead the development of community culture, so that that's what young people in this community experience, from home, from going to school, that they grow up like this too. I've seen A parallel to that with uh, my kids growing up thinking, well, why wouldn't I want to look for organic produce? Why wouldn't I want to have relationship with local farmers? Isn't that just the way it is? And growing up in a community that says, well, that's just the way our community is, and taking those values elsewhere in their lives and inspiring others to uh, disperse it into other communities Is a tremendous direction that I see Wise going and able to really achieve big things. Action, reaction, stay with it.
1: Thank you for joining us for episode three of Wiser. We'll be taking a break next week, but back on Thursday, February 17th. Wiser is a collaboration between WISE and Northern Stage. Episodes are out on Thursdays. Sign up at northernstage.org slash Wiser. WISE was made by producer Jess Chase, associate producer Sophie Kinney, and sound designer and editor Alec Diva. Sound engineer was Cliff Rogers with support from Helen Rucker and the entire Northern Stage production staff. Generously supported by Mascoma Bank, a proud sponsor of WISE and Northern Stage. Thank you.